This morning's scripture reading comes from Genesis 11, verses 10 through 32. You can find it in the Blue Pew Bible on page 8 at the bottom. We're in Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 32. Please stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Genesis 11, verses 10 through 32. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. And Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu lived 32 years, he fathered Sarag. And Reu lived after he fathered Sarag 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarag had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Oh, gracious God, we thank you for the reading of your inspired word. We Pray now that every word there may speak to us, may teach us, that we may come away from a look at this text as changed people. May your Holy Spirit help us, may your Holy Spirit open up our minds and our hearts, that we may respond rightly to the preaching of your word. 
pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, this morning we are taking a break from our series in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to return to that in August. We're going to pick up right where we left off in 1 Corinthians 9. And what we're going to do today instead is we're going to return to a sermon series that we had started over a year ago when we preached through Genesis chapter 1 to 11. And we had stopped in chapter 11 with the story of the Tower of Babel. And you could say that we kind of stopped the sermon series last year right at a very low point in the story. Because the human race had tried to unite under the banner of human pride and ingenuity to build for themselves a city that stretches to the heavens to make a name for themselves, the text says. But if you recall, the story ended with humanity divided. They couldn't understand each other. And they couldn't stand each other. And so they ended up scattering to the ends of the earth. And the, and the story looked bleak. Things looked bad. But we know the story doesn't end there. doesn't end at that low point. Because immediately in the very next chapter, in Genesis chapter 12, we are introduced to a man named Abram. Or better known to us as Abraham. And this is the man that God promises to make into a great nation. And through this one nation, the Lord intends to bless all those scattered nations. All the divided and scattered families will, will be united once again and blessed through this one family with Abram at its head. So really in the span of just one chapter, the, the story that's unfolding in the book of Genesis just changes direction all of a sudden, going from pessimism to optimism, from despair to hope. And the story suddenly just slows down for us here in chapter 12, and, and it narrows the focus now onto just one man and his one family. I mean, for, the, for the first 11 chapters of Genesis, it's very fast-paced. It is covering you know, the entire story of humanity, and it is spiraling fast and, and, and out of control. But now, starting here, for the next 14 chapters, the pace slows down remarkably, and everything centers on just one man and all the events surrounding his life and his calling. And, and the passage that, that we have today, this particular passage serves as a bridge. It's connecting the depressing story of Babel with the hopeful story of Abraham. And the overall message of our passage is meant to reinforce God's faithfulness to keep his promises to redeem us in spite of our human pride, in spite of our human rebellion. God is faithful and he will redeem. That's the function of this particular text this morning, this bridge text connecting these two, these two parts of the book of Genesis. Now, what's noteworthy for us is that this morning's text, as you just heard, is a long genealogy. It's a genealogy of Shem, one of the three sons of Noah, and he's a distant forefather to Abram. Now, let's be honest. This is one of those texts that we tend to skim over in our Bible reading, right? I mean, perhaps you've never actually read through this passage word for word until 
right now, today, as it was just read for you. And I think it is a very good exercise for us to really slow down in a text like this and not just to, to quickly uh, skim through. I, I know it's not a very exciting text, and you're probably wondering, is he really going to preach through this whole thing? <laughs> is he really going to walk us through this genealogy? I mean, preaching a gene- genealogy doesn't sound very riveting. It doesn't sound very relevant. But that, my friends, is where I hope to surprise you this morning. I hope you come away convinced that every text in Scripture is divinely inspired and is both relevant and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I hope you come away with three key observations. If you want to follow along, look inside your um, program uh, in your your, uh, bulletin. You'll see an outline, and I want you to hopefully walk away convinced of these three observations. First, Shem's genealogy gives hope that God always keeps his promises. Second, Abram's pagan background reminds us that anyone can be chosen by God. And third, Abram's obedience serves as a very good illustration of saving faith, of genuine faith. Okay, so let's go into this. Let's, let's tackle this genealogy together. And let's begin with an observation that has to do with uh, verses 10 to 26, with this genealogy itself. And I, I'm sure there are some Bible readers out there who get really excited about this, really excited about genealogy. You know, they love to get into the nitty-gritty of Scripture, right? Just finding out all the intricacies of, of biblical family trees. You know, who's related to who? How does this character connect to this other character? You know, some people love this stuff. I'm pretty sure it's a small minority, <laughs> But there are people out there who just love this. But, you know, beyond appealing to the intellectual fancy of a small minority of Bible readers, I'm convinced that a biblical genealogy has a message for us all. It has an overall theological message that it's trying to communicate, one that is going to connect and relate to the overall story of redemption being told in the pages of Scripture. And in this case, I would argue that, gems, uh, that Shem's, Shem's genealogy gives us hope that God always keeps his promises. That's, I believe, the, the message being communicated. Now, what makes our genealogy more interesting is the fact that it appears at first glance to be rather redundant. Because if you were reading straight through uh, Genesis chapter 10, right on into Genesis 11, you would have noted that we were already given a genealogy of Shem earlier in chapter 10, verses 21 to 31. We already had to read through a very detailed genealogy. Why is the biblical author giving us another one? Why is he being redundant? Well, friends, you need to remember that in ancient times, any kind of written communication was very deliberate. It was a calculated choice. Because I think we forget about this. We, we, we live in such a digital age where, you know, you can write an email, you can, you can send a text, and you can be as verbose as you want. You can be as redundant as you want. You can ramble on without any concern of running out of room. But not in ancient times. When you're writing on clay tablets, when you're writing on papyrus, you have to be economical. You have to be intentional. So you don't repeat yourself unless 
you have a really good reason to do so. And so what this means as readers of Scripture is that if you ever come across a text in the same book written by the same author and it, it seems to repeat itself, then you had better pay, pay close attention to that passage because there is a good reason why it's being written again. And to miss that reason is to ultimately miss the point of the passage. And so if you actually do compare these two genealogies, what we find in chapter 11 with what was already written in chapter 10, the big difference that stands out for us, the main thing that you're going to see if you put them side by side, is you're going to notice that when you get to Eber, and Eber is the great-grandson of Shem, when you get to Eber, if you're looking at the genealogy in chapter 10, it diverges in a different direction than in our text. See, in Genesis chapter 10, verse 25, it says this, To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. And then you keep reading in verse 26, it goes on to follow the line of Joktan, which directly leads us to chapter 11 and the story of the Tower of Babel. But if you then look at our text in chapter 11, verse 16, when you get to Eber, notice how the genealogy follows another line. It follows the line of Peleg, which leads us not to Babel, it leads us to Abram. Not to desperation and despair, no, but it leads us to hope and promise and blessing. That's what it leads. So if you don't read these genealogies carefully, you're just going to assume this is a repeat, this is redundant, when in fact, this is very intentional. This genealogy that we find here in chapter 11 was written to convey the same theme that has been woven throughout the pages of Genesis, starting all the way back in chapter 3. Namely, the theme of an ancient struggle between two lines of progeny. The seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. Cain versus Abel. Ishmael versus Isaac. Esau versus Jacob, or in our case, we're dealing with Joktan versus Peleg. And Peleg is the one who represents the line of promise. Remember, God promised to Adam and Eve that a chosen seed would one day crush the head of the serpent and would redeem humanity, redeem all of creation from the curse of sin. And that's what this Genesis 11 genealogy is intended to represent. That's why it was intentionally recorded for us, to remind the readers of Genesis that the God of Genesis is faithful to keep his promises by preserving a line of progeny that is destined to inherit the promises of God. Now, that's already pretty amazing in just a quick comparison between two texts. I think there's more juice in this genealogy, and we just got to squeeze a little more. And so if we compare this genealogy in chapter 11 to another genealogy that we've already seen in the earlier chapters of Genesis, we can draw out even more observations. If you go back to chapter 5, Genesis 5, we are given there a genealogy of Adam 
And back in last year when we went through these chapters, we, we quickly looked at it. We didn't go into this depth as we are today, but we looked at Genesis chapter 5 and G, uh, Adam's genealogy. And you got to remember there that Adam had initially two sons, Cain and Abel, but Cain killed his brother Abel. And so the lineage of promise was now passed down through Adam's third son. His name was Seth. And so in chapter 5, we're introduced to 10 generations going from Adam all the way to Noah. So Adam, Seth, a bunch of other patriarchs, and you end with Noah. And if you look at the comparison between chapter 5 and chapter 11, they line up perfectly in the sense that Shem's genealogy, going from Shem to Abram, is also another 10 generations. So both genealogies covering 10 generations. Now, it's important here to, to understand that ancient genealogies were usually not written with precise chronological order. What I mean is that it was actually quite common and accepted to skip generations, sometimes skipping multiple generations for a particular purpose. And so even, even the word fathering someone, to father someone could be applied to a distant descendant further down the line and not just applied to your literal son. And so I think the reason why an author would skip generations in a genealogy is because his main purpose is not to detail for us a family tree. His main purpose is to make a literary connection in order to communicate a theological point. And, that, and what I'm trying to say here is that there actually are more than 10 generations between Shem and Abram. But the author of Genesis limits himself to 10 generations so that readers can remember what they just read earlier in chapter 5 and make that connection between the two genealogies and now start making comparisons here. And when you read Genesis 5 and Genesis 11 next to each other, there are more differences to be had, two striking differences in particular. First, you notice a huge drop in the lifespan in Shem's genealogy after the flood. From Adam to Noah in chapter 5, these men had lifespans that averaged about 900 years, years old. So Noah, the very uh, last one in that genealogy, we're told that he lived to 950. But when you get to our passage, to Genesis 11, verse 11, we're told that Shem, his son, died when he was 600. So he lived less than two-thirds the lifespan of his father. And then his son, Arpachshad, his life was shortened by another third. And by the time you do get to Peleg, his lifespan is cut in half compared to his father. And then we're told that Nahor, this is uh, Abram's grandfather, he lived uh, 138 years, which gets us closer to the, the prediction that we had seen earlier in Genesis 6, verse 3, where it says that because of humanity's corruption and all the consequences that it reaps, man's days, we're told, shall be 120 years. So that was predicted by God in Genesis chapter 6, and we see it being played out as the lifespans decrease. So that stands out in Shem's genealogy. Man's lifespan is increasingly shortened as a consequence of man's sin. There's another key difference between the two genealogies, and that's the deletion of the phrase, and he died. 
When you get to chapter 11, you do not read those words, and he died. Back in Genesis 5, that genealogy, that, that was the common refrain. After every generation listed for you, it ends by saying, and he died, and he died, and he died. And those three little words serve to be a cruel and constant reminder that ever since the day Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Death reigned supreme. But that's what makes the absence of those three words so notable in Shem's genealogy. Here in this one, here in chapter 11, the stress is no longer on death reigning, but on hope rising. That's the theme. Yes, mankind's lifespan is increasingly shortened, but that fact is counterbalanced by the absence of that phrase, and he died, thereby striking for us a more hopeful tone in this genealogy as it moves us towards Genesis 12, as it moves us towards promise and blessing. There's hope rising here. And the, and the hope keeps rising as, as the story of redemption continues to unfold in the pages of Scripture. And the lineage of promise is preserved from one generation to the next until we reach another genealogy in the pages of Scripture. That also starts with Adam and includes Seth and Noah. It includes Shem and Abram. But this genealogy that we come across in Luke chapter 3 extends even further, all the way to Jesus, the supposed son of Joseph. Jesus ends up being the offspring of Eve who suffers and dies for the sins of man. And in so doing, that's how he crushes the head of the serpent. That's how he accomplishes redemption for us. But friends, this is what I'm trying to say. This is the theological message that is being conveyed in what otherwise would have been considered a boring genealogy. And this is a needed reminder that the promises of God cannot be thwarted. It cannot be thwarted by a human rebellion or human sin, not even by the events of Babel. I mean, you would think that the confusion of languages and the scattering of all the nations certainly has the potential to crush our hopes, to wreck our optimism, which is why the author gives us this genealogy of Shem. Shem, in Hebrew, his name means name. <laughs> Shem means name, and that is so significant because if you think about it, we, as we've already seen, in one branch of Shem's family tree through Joktan, this line tried to make a name for themselves, but they ended up receiving the shameful name of Babel, meaning confusion. But there's another line, another line of uh, another branch, and this line of Shem that goes through Peleg leads us to Abram. And we're told in the beginning of chapter 12 that Abram's story ends with an everlasting name given to him and to his family, a name that is to be exalted as great. And that's, that's exactly how God's grace always works, doesn't it? You can try so hard to 
make a name for yourself. You can devote all your time, all your energy to build a legacy for yourself. And it can be great. It could be as grand as a tower stretching up to the heavens. But the whole point is that no matter what kind of name you try to make for yourself, the only name that matters in the end is the name that God makes for you. The name that you receive by grace through faith. That's what actually matters. So friends, I hope, I hope you never underestimate the richness and the relevancy of an Old Testament genealogy. This one is a needed reminder that in spite of our pride, in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our sin, the Lord always keeps his promises and he will always preserve hope in the face of despair. And there is a great name waiting for you if you were to trust only in his promises and what he will provide for you by his grace. That's what we're getting out of this genealogy. Now, friends, I think there is more to be had, and especially now as we go into verse 27, and we, we, uh, we look at verses 27 to 30, and the focus here falls on Terah and his household, and there's more observations to be made. Uh, now, this is Abraham's father, and what we can learn based on historical background and the names of his household members, it becomes clear that Terah and his household were actually pagan worshipers. They worshiped the ancient Sumerian moon god named, ironically, Sin. <laughs> that's, that's actually the name of the moon god, Sin. Um, now, here's our second observation. Abram's pagan background reminds us that anyone can be chosen by God. Anyone can be chosen. If being an idolatrous worshiper of the moon doesn't disqualify you from being saved, from being chosen by God to be a channel of a blessing to the world, I think that should give hope and encouragement to every single one of us. Now, like I said, scholars think that Terah and his family members were moon worshipers because of the location where they lived and because of the origin of their names. First, Ur and Haran, as ancient cities, were known to be thriving centers of moon worship. And so we're told in verse 28 that Terah and his family are from Ur of the Chaldeans. And on their way to Canaan, in verse 31, it says they didn't actually complete that journey, and they settled instead in the city of Haran. So what this means is that Abraham, or He's known as Abram at this point. Abram spent a significant portion of his life in two of the most important centers of cult worship dedicated to the ancient Sumerian moon god. And what's more, consider the names of the household members and their meaning. Terah, for example, his name in Hebrew is related to the word for moon. And Sarai, Abram's wife, her name in Hebrew, as we're told later uh, in, in the text, it means princess, princess in Hebrew. But in the language of ancient Mesopotamia, her name means queen. And it was actually the name of the queen consort of the moon god Sin. And then if you look at uh, Milka, Terah's granddaughter, mentioned for us in verse 29, her name bears, she bears the exact same name as the daughter of that same Sumerian moon god. 
Okay, so the naming of family members also uh, communicates that they were part of the moon cult. They worshipped moon, the moon god uh, of ancient Samaria. Now, lest you think I'm, I'm just reading way too much into the particular cities named and, and their particular names, you're thinking, you know, this is, you, you, you're stretching it here. This idea that Abram grew up with a pagan background is actually confirmed for us later in Scripture. Scripture tells us this is his background. If you go to Joshua, and if you read Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, there Joshua is recounting the story of Israel, and he says to all the people, listen to this, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. This is in ancient Mesopotamia. Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. So scripture is telling us that Abram and his family were pagan worshipers. And now we know more particular about who they were worshiping, the moon god in those days. Just think about that. This is Father Abraham, the patriarch to the people of Israel. This is the Old Testament exemplar of, of saving faith. And now we realize he originally was a polytheistic idol worshiper. I mean, I could just imagine in his pagan days living in Ur of the Chaldeans, I can imagine how he must have spent so many nights stargazing, looking up at the night sky, looking up at the moon, looking up at all the stars. And little did he know that all those years of staring into the night sky, all of his familiarity with the starry host, all of his wonder and amazement at how vast they are, all of that would be utilized by the Lord to one day floor the man to blow his mind, and more importantly, to strengthen his faith in God's promise of offspring as numerous as the number of stars in the sky. All those years were preparing him for what's going to happen in Genesis 15. Friends, there is nothing that God leaves to mere coincidence. He does everything with intention. That means every aspect of Abram's background, every detail of his life experience was intended by God and was used by God for a greater purpose. That is to strengthen his faith and to use him to be a blessing to other people. And the Lord, I believe, is doing the exact same thing in our lives. The very aspects of your background. The very details of your life experience that you find so difficult, that you think are so disqualifying before God, are very likely the very purposes of God to strengthen your faith and to prepare you with a unique testimony by which you can be a blessing to others. Why did he allow that tragedy to take place? Why did he give you a difficult marriage? Why did he give you a painful home life? Why did he permit that traumatic experience? Why do you have such a different background socially or spiritually compared to everyone else in your faith community? 
Why are you so different? It's not without purpose. He leaves nothing to coincidence. What you find so shameful, what you find so disqualifying about your life experience, God, he sees an opportunity. All things work for good. He works all things for good, we're told. Well, as the Lord is doing that, the Lord can redeem that difficult and disqualifying experience. And I know that he can use it to make your faith even stronger and make you even more effective to bless other people who have gone through that same life experience. Who knew that you could be used by God to do great things? Who knew? If he can use a pagan moon worshiper, he could certainly use you. And again, that, my friends, is another lesson that we can squeeze out of a text. That at first glance, I know it seems pretty dry, but there definitely is more here if we just look deeper. Now, I think there's another thing to be learned. We simply have to now look at verses 31 to 32, and this describes the move of Terah and his family from Ur of the Chaldeans to eventually setting in the city, settling in the city of Haran. And with the help of some other related texts of Scripture, we do learn a thing or two about Abram's faithful obedience. And so this is, this is the last thing. If we just squeeze a little further, we'll, we'll, we'll see a few more things. This is, the, this is the third and final observation. Abram's obedience serves as a good illustration of genuine faith. Now we're told here in the text that Terah had three sons. You had Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Not to be confused with the city of Haran, which they eventually live in. Now Haran, this third son, we're told, died relatively young while the family was still living in Ur of the Chaldeans. And so he's the one, we're told, that fathered Lot, Abram's nephew, who's going to play a more prominent role later on in the narrative. And we're also told here that Abram and Nahor uh, marry wives. And Nahor marries his niece, the daughter of his deceased brother, Haran. Uh, and Abram marries Sarai, who we learn later is his half-sister. Now, the unorthodox nature of these marital unions was actually not uncommon in those ancient days, in, in this era of, of primeval history. But those incestuous unions would eventually be clearly prohibited by the teachings of Mosaic law when you get to Leviticus. Uh, it's, it's definitely going to prohibit that among the people of Israel. But here, this is, this is what's going on in primeval history. Now we're told, though, later on in verse 30, 31, that Terah and his family made a significant move. So let, let me just read verse 31 for us. Terah took... Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Now, I know based on that alone, just, if you just read verse 31, it, it seems as if Terah is the one who initiated everything. That he's the one who initiated this move towards the land of Canaan. But if you just keep reading in Genesis 12, or if you just look at other biblical texts referring to this same episode, it's clear that it wasn't Terah. It was actually Abram that God was calling. 
He called Abram to leave his country and to go to a land yet unknown. It was Abram who initiated all of this. So, so for example, listen to Nehemiah's recounting of these events. He says in Nehemiah 9, You are Yahweh, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. Or uh, listen to Stephen's reading uh, or retelling of these events found in Acts chapter 7. This is you know, during his, uh, when he's about to be martyred and he, he gives this speech. And it says, Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he, Abram, went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living, in the land of Canaan. So if we piece all of that together, what we learn from these various texts is that while Abram was living with his wife and extended family in Mesopotamia, in Ur of the Chaldeans, he received a divine call to go to a land that God would eventually show him. And he was able to convince his father Terah and his nephew Lot to come along with him. But when they arrived in Haran, remember another prominent center of moon worship, Terah, his father, refused to go any further and wanted to settle right there. And so Abram, we're told according to Stephen in Acts 7, Abram waited until his father's death before leaving Haran and continuing on in his journey to eventually the land of Canaan. And the very last reference to this episode of his life that's found for us in the pages of Scripture is found in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, the writer of Hebrews presents Abram's obedience to the call of God as a good illustration of faith for us to consider. Listen to Hebrews 11, 8. By faith... Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And listen to this. And he went out not knowing where he was going. He went even though he didn't know where he was going, what it was going to look like, whether it was going to be better a better land than the land that he was in, he went and followed the call of God. So friends, you have a pagan idol worshiper living in Mesopotamia, unfamiliar with the Lord God, advanced in years, he's settled, he's prosperous, he's got all his family, all his immediate and extended family all around him. I mean, he's really at a life stage that I think most of us are aspiring to, to finally get to that place where we are settled, everything's, you know, you know, you know everything is stable in life family all around, and yet, because he heard God calling, Abraham was willing to risk it all and leave everything, everything that he was comfortable with, everything he was familiar with, in order to go to a strange new land, all in obedience to God's word. That, my friends, is a good illustration of genuine faith. The writer of Hebrews defines faith for us as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things 
not seen. Well, Abram, he didn't wait until he got a glimpse of Canaan before he was willing to leave country and kindred behind. No, he started walking before he knew exactly where the Lord was leading. He walked by faith and not by sight. He went out from the familiar. He went out from the comfortable simply because God's word said so. Not because he was able to figure out all his plans. Not because he was able to iron out all the details first and then he went. No, before all of that, because the Lord called, he went. And notice how his faithful obedience to his calling, notice how following God's calling on his life didn't ask for him to neglect his family or to abandon familial duties. Notice Notice how there wasn't tension there. Abram still managed to honor his father and to care for his father until he died. And, and he also took on the added responsibility of caring for his orphan nephew, Lot. And, and he remained faithful to his beloved wife, even though she was barren and she was unable to bear him any children. He was faithful to his duties. And yet, he was ultimately faithful to God's calling on his life. And that's a lesson for us. And I'm not surprised if you are right now are wrestling with God's word. You're wrestling with something he's calling you to do. And he's clearly calling you to step forward in obedience, but you know that doing so will be uncomfortable. It will be unfamiliar. Perhaps God is calling you to step forward and to reconcile a broken relationship in your life. Perhaps he's calling you to step forward to initiate a difficult, uncomfortable conversation with your spouse or with a friend. Perhaps he's calling you to step forward into the unknown and to trust him with a career change, a significant move, a life-altering decision. Or perhaps he's calling you to himself for salvation, to trust his promises to turn away from your sin, and to begin following him in the newness of eternal life. What is he calling you to do? Well, no matter the particulars of your situation, heeding his call is going to take faith. And you manifest that faith through obedience, by taking that first step in the direction of his call. Like Abram, at this point in your journey, you're not going to know exactly how everything is going to turn out. You're not going to know where it's going to lead. You don't know the final outcome. But I can promise you this. If you are obeying God's call on your life, then you can know exactly who is going to be with you along the way. Our God is faithful to keep all of his promises and to keep by our side until all of his promises come to fruition. Never will he leave you. Never will he forsake you. That's a promise. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this genealogy, this text that we so quickly just skip over and skim over. And yet, when we sit in it, we realize there is so much for us. There is so much hope here. There's so much promise here. And I pray, Lord, that you will encourage each of us as we come away from this time of worship, sitting under your word. We pray all of this 
in Jesus' name. Amen.